Well, I have a question for you to start with this morning, so don't get too comfy. Um, it's never great for the people listening to this online or on the recording because they can't hear you, so I'll try and repeat what you say for their benefit. But we're thinking uh, about what makes a healthy church, and this one is the penultimate one, as Jai said. And one of the things that makes a healthy church is Christians who grow. And so my question uh, is, what does it mean to grow as a Christian? When I, we, sometimes as Christians we use phrases because they trip off the tongue and we kind of think we know what we mean. Sometimes it's good just to stop, isn't it, and think, what do we mean when we talk about Christians growing? So, over to you. What, we'll play word association. Growing Christians, what, what does that mean to you? What does that phrase mean to you? What, what does that mean to you in life, uh, generally? Um, this, this is always hard, isn't it? Because you know I'm going to preach about this now. So. <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping that this will just get the juices flowing and that we can build on, on what you say now. So who's going to volunteer, first of all? What do, what, what do you think it means when we talk about Christians growing? Just show out some ideas. Okay. So to get to to get to know Jesus more and more in our daily life. Okay. There you go, you've broken the ice now. It should all start flowing now. Okay, so that's an important point. So not only are we going to get to know Jesus more, but as we do that, we're actually beginning to reflect him and to become like him. And our relationships and our life are kind of seasoned with uh, a sense of Christ-likeness. So, yeah, that's good. If we, if we were saying, are we growing as Christians, one of the tests of that is, are we becoming more like Jesus? So that's excellent. Anything else? Is that 2 0 to this side? No pressure. <laughs> well, it looks like this is a subject we need to look at, doesn't it? To be faithful. Yeah, sure. That's very important, isn't it? We've been thinking about that in our series the idea of faithfulness. Um, growing as a Christian certainly involves that sense of faithfulness, doesn't it? God's faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to Him as well. Good, that's 2 1. Oh, it's going to be 3 1 now. <laughs> Go on, John. Yeah, we, yeah, it kind of needs application, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, it doesn't just happen. We need to be intentional. Moira? Yeah. Yeah, to rely on Jesus rather than do things in our own strength. Okay. <laughs> go on. Here we go. <laughs> I think as you, grow to be, as you grow to become a Christian, I think you learn the importance of being a member of church. Yeah. What it is to be part of that church. Yeah. And how wonderful it is to come to love and care for the people around you as fellow Christians and growing more and more each time as you learn more about Jesus. Yeah. How you can care for your fellow Christians. Okay. Just one mistake. 
Yeah, okay, so Ian was saying that uh, the sense of corporate nature of Christianity, that when you become a Christian, the privilege of being part of a church family and being able to help one another and grow together is really important. Well, all those things are very true, and we've been touching on some of this in our series, haven't we? Um, let me begin then by introducing you to an imaginary friend of mine. I, I don't really have imaginary friends, but just uh, think with me. Sometimes we can learn as we try to flesh out uh, some contrast, can't we? My imaginary friend is called John. He became a Christian when he was 18 years old. And he'd been through some tough times in his life, in his late teens. I would say that John was pretty much at the end of his tether. And, uh, but he, he, he did work, and he knew a Christian at work called Steve. And Steve was always badgering him to come to Christian meetings. And uh, John thought, why not? I'm at the end of my tether. My life has been very difficult recently. I'm going to go and see what these Christians are talking about. And to his surprise, he, he, he did go to a Christian meeting. He was quite moved by what he heard. The people there seemed generous and kind and interested in him. And afterwards, he began to open up a little bit to Steve, his friend, about some of the things that were going on in his life. And he said, my life has just been out of control. And everything that could go wrong has, has been going wrong. And Steve told him of the wonderful life that he could have as a Christian. Forgiveness from God for everything he'd ever done wrong. The promise of eternal life in heaven with God when he died. And the best thing of all for John was that it was all free. Seemed like the best thing he'd heard in a long time. And he thought, I've got nothing to lose. So he said to Steve, where do I sign? Where, where do I sign up for this? This sounds amazing. Well, Steve pulled a little booklet out of his pocket and he turned to the back and there was a little prayer at the back of the booklet and, uh, and Steve, his friend, said to him, this is a prayer of commitment. And he explained that he would pray and that John should repeat what he said and pray it for himself and to mean it in his heart. And that's what they did. Uh, Steve prayed and his friend John repeated and when they said amen, Steve was really excited and he said to John that he had become a Christian. He explained that God promised to save people who confess their sins and believe in Jesus. And so there it was. John was now saved. And John felt good about that. A feeling of acceptance and approval. Well, John, in the following years, lived a pretty uh, good life. Um, he was part of the church. And uh, by the time he reached the age of 40, everyone felt that he was pretty much a pillar in the church. But there were some hidden issues. If, if you spoke to uh, my friend John, he, he would have to confess to himself that he didn't really know the Bible that well. He had taught in Sunday school but the thing was, the lessons that they were teaching were prepared by someone else. 
And he didn't really have to know the Bible. It was very easy to follow the, the plan, if you like. He didn't really know that many of the books in the Bible. He knew the familiar parts, but he didn't really know the Bible as a whole. He knew that in his church people talked a lot about the gospel. And he knew that it was very important. He knew that it had something to do with Jesus dying on the cross and that that was a big deal. But if you really asked him to boil it down, he wouldn't really be able to explain why it was a big deal. John had come to the realisation that conversion really was a big decision that would basically make your life better. It was perhaps like buying a new car or moving house. It was a bit scary, but not that bad once you'd done it. And after all, it was important to get your eternal destiny sorted out and to know where you were going after you died. Christianity for him was a way to live a basically moral life and the church certainly had given him a lot of friends and a sense of belonging. Then he was thinking about evangelism. That was a big word that scared him a little. The leaders in the church seemed to do it quite a lot and he'd been roped in a few times to hand out leaflets and be involved in various activities. But no one actually realised that John had never actually joined the church. People just assumed that because he was there, he was a member in the church. Secretly, John quite liked it that way because there were times when he wanted to be a bit less involved. Sometimes he was really up for it and he was there every Sunday. But other times he just felt a bit flat and wouldn't be there for a while. He was, if he was honest, he was a bit daunted by being too committed. It felt to him like he was signing a blank cheque. Which meant people could ask him for anything and to do anything any time they wanted him to. And he didn't want to put his life in other people's hands in that way as he thought. He was very busy at work as well and he had a young family. Sometimes it was nice just to be able to drift a little. Over the years, for John, there had been some other issues in the church as well. The church had had a few different pastors, ministers, and he got on with some of them better than others. One of them had really challenged his daughter. She was only young, but she came home one day and said that she was really thinking when she grew up she wanted to be a missionary and John was horrified how could she be talking about being a missionary and he, and he, he actually stopped his daughter from going to the youth group for a few months just so this feeling would wear off and he began to drift a little bit himself but it didn't really worry him because he knew that when he was 18 he prayed that prayer with his friend Steve and he knew that God wouldn't let him down. Now let me ask you a question about our friend John. My friend, John. Imaginary friend. Based on no one I know. <laughs> so, would you say that John was growing spiritually as a Christian in his life? Let's have a little vote. I think I've set that up as a leading question, haven't I? What do you think? Do you think he was growing as a Christian or not? What do you think? No? Maybe a little? 
No. Well, I think um, it's good to start there, isn't it? We perhaps recognise some of the things that we've talked about there with John, our imaginary friend. I think one of the difficulties that we have in the West, in our Christian churches, is the emergence of a new brand of Christian, in inverted commas, and it is partly based on a misunderstanding of some of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, let me just turn you to this passage, page 1145. Paul's writing into a very difficult church situation. And he says to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. That word worldly, some of you who are older Christians will recognise that in the older version of the Bible, that word is translated carnal. And it really means someone who's not really living a Christian life. Worldly. And so this idea comes along that there are three different types of people in the world. There are people who are not Christians. There are people who are really great, good Christians. And in the middle, there's this whole plethora of people who are just worldly Christians. And Paul says it there, he writes them and calls them worldly. So there must be this middle ground of worldly Christians. This is like the people in the middle who are sitting on the fence. They've convinced themselves, like our imaginary friend John, that they are truly Christians, but they've just opted out of actually living like a Christian. I don't think Paul is introducing a new brand of Christian in this passage. What Paul's doing is using exaggeration. Literary people call it hyperbole, don't they? He's trying to emphasise something by contrast. And he's using what Jai would call an oxymoron. Do you know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is when you put two things together that are opposite. So if you said, look at that block of ice, it's boiling hot. That would be an oxymoron. Hot ice is, is an oxymoron. You can't have hot ice or cold steam or worldly Christians. It is an oxymoron. It is a logical impossibility. And the issue is that we've invented a new brand of Christian that kind of sits in the middle. I'm not I'm not not a Christian, but I'm not like one of those Christians who really take it seriously. I'm just one of those carnal Christians. I just fit in the middle somewhere. The Bible doesn't allow us to take that view, really. I think many churches are filled, sadly, aren't they, with people like John. Drifters who go through life relying on some path decision, but never really get into grips with life. And they persuade themselves that they're okay. And we as churches allow them to persuade themselves that they're okay. 
Some churches are so full of people like John that anyone who tries to live a normal Christian life will stand out like a sore thumb. As some kind of weirdo. Some kind of person who's a bit fanatical and a bit sort of taking it all a bit too seriously. Because we've got so used to uh, drifting. Imagine that. Living as a Christian makes you look like a weirdo in a church. But that is, is that what our kind of Western churches sometimes have come to? So in our little series, we'll think about what makes healthy church. And this morning, I want to challenge myself and challenge you that if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church of Christian people who are growing spiritually. So let's do that. First of all, I want to talk about a theology of growth. Um, I, I think it is possible that some, some people might criticise this idea as being a bit self-centred. You Christians are always talking about whether you're growing or not. What you need is to break free of all that and be concerned about other people. Poverty, injustice, social trends. You're so inward looking that you have no impact. Well, there's some truth in that, possibly. But let's try and build up a little picture of this idea of, of growth. We're going to skip around a little bit in the Bible, so um, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, that would be really good. Um, first of all, let me talk about growth from creation perspective. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. That's an easy pace to find. Genesis chapter 1. And um, we're thinking about growth. Genesis chapter 1. And verse 22, first of all. So this is on page 1 in the Red Church Bibles. Obviously. Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. See that? Be fruitful and increase in number. He's talking there about the animal kingdom. Fill the water and the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. But it's not just the animal kingdom. When we get down to verse 28, God has created human beings. And he says there, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God wanted them to grow. He created an environment for them to live in and he wanted them to increase, to grow. That was a mark of his blessing. You know the, uh, the story of, of, of how corruption came into the world. Eventually God uh, judged the world, didn't he, with a flood. And the thing that had been increasing suddenly decreased very rapidly. But just turn with me to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. What did God say to Noah after the flood? Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The same command to them. What about... Um, the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. How can we see growth emphasised in them? Well, if you flick over the page to Genesis chapter 12, 
God appeared to one man, a pagan man, Abraham. He lived in a country very far away from uh, where Israel ended up being. And what did he say to Abram? Verse 1, leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will bless you. In fact, verse 3, all people on earth will be blessed through you. In our little steering team on a Wednesday, we've been going through the book of Genesis. We started here in chapter 12. We're just nearly getting to the end. And uh, we've seen how Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, all these descendants, eventually Jacob and his 12 sons went down to Egypt during a famine. Joseph was sent before them uh, to rescue them. 70 people from Jacob's family went down to Egypt. And over 400 years later, they numbered, some commentators estimate, possibly up to two Point five million. That's called growth. For seventy of them, they grew to two point five million people. Well, we haven't got the time to trace the whole of that Bible history, but you will know from the series we did in the prophets recently that uh, this nation of Israel eventually went into exile. And let me just show you one more verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 6. So this is page uh, 789. So here's God's disillusioned, disappointed, disobedient people. A shadow of of the glory that they'd known. And what does God say to them as they're in exile? Verse 6, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. God's command to them was for them to grow. So there is a sense theologically that God is a God of growth. Abundance. God is a fruitful God. He is not a miserable, dark, stingy, sinister God. He is the God of life and living things grow. And the command of God to his creation is, be fruitful. There is a sense as God pours his life into his creation the creation, the creation blossoms and flourishes and grows and increases. It's true in creation. It's true in the life of his people, Israel. What about uh, the idea of righteousness? This is um, now a moral issue. I want to suggest to you that it is a universal principle that selfishness shrivels. And righteousness grows. You ever think of life like that? Think of the people you know who are inward looking. There is something very self-centered about being preoccupied with me all the time, isn't there? 
Selfishness tends to shrivel. Righteousness tends to grow and flourish. Just turn with me to a psalm. Uh, psalm 92. I said I would wake you. Uh, it's page 600. Psalm 92. These, these are lovely words. And I hope uh, these will encourage you. It says there, well, page 601 actually, just onto the next page, the second half of the psalm. Psalm 92, verse 12. Uh, the psalmist says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will still stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. Isn't that a lovely verse? Lovely passage. Those of you who are young, who one day will be old, would that be your prayer for your life? That even in old age you'll still bear fruit? And those of you who are old who've been bearing fruit, what an encouragement to you. What a picture that is of a righteous life. To be like a fruitful tree. Planted. Deep roots. It's not going to blow over when trouble comes. But it's full of fruit and goodness and sap. And It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of righteousness that grows. There are obviously some, some kinds of growth that we should be careful about. Um, the Bible warns in many places about the dangers of growing wealthy for its own sake. It is pretty pointless to grow wealthy for its own sake because we can't take anything with us when we die. Death strips us of all the things that we've accumulated in this world so we ought not to be too easily seduced by material things Jesus himself said didn't he what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits or loses his soul so there are some it isn't wrong to accumulate wealth but it is wrong to do it for its own sake and for that to become our ultimate aim in life What about the kingdom of God? At Christmas time, we often sing songs uh, based on the prophet Isaiah. Uh, do, you, do you know the song, Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given? Isaiah chapter 9, that is. Do you know the rest of it? Isaiah chapter 9. Let me... Um, show you here as well the theme of growth the verse that we're familiar with is verse 6 this is part of a prophecy um, for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counsellor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace and then verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end that's the verse that we often gloss over. Did you get that? The, Jesus is the one that Isaiah is talking about there. And his, his kingdom will always be increasing. 
of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. It will always be growing. Did that ever strike you? The kingdom of Jesus isn't a kind of boring, static, state thing, but he's always taking new ground, expanding the sphere of his influence. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What a great idea that is. The kingdom of God is a glorious one because it is always fruitful. It is always looking out of itself. It's always expanding, increasing, growing, multiplying its borders and influence. It parallels what Jesus says in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. Let me read to you. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted it in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. What a simple and lovely parable that is. Jesus is talking about the spread and growth of his kingdom. And you can trace this idea too all the way through the book of Acts. Isn't it great that we've got the book of Acts in the Bible that tells us all about the early church? If you've um, got the uh, patience with me, I'll turn you to some other verses. I'll I'll read them as we get there if you don't want to. But Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 Just anecdotally, Luke says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. What a great word. That's growth, isn't it? The the number of disciples was expanding and increasing. People were being saved. The church was bearing fruit. Verse 7 of the same chapter, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Just go with me to chapter 12 and uh, verse 24. Luke tells us there, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. That's a strange verse, isn't it? The word of God continued to increase. I think what he means is that the word of God continued to increase and spread its influence. People were being, becoming Christians. The church was growing. Chapter 13, over the page, verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. That's a good thing to pray for, isn't it? That the word of God would spread through the whole region. Growth, increase. One, one last verse, Acts chapter 19. And verse 20, Paul is in Ephesus. The church in a short number of years has spread from Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean and uh, Ephesus in modern day Turkey. And what does uh, Luke say in verse 20 of chapter 19? In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Do you get a sense that the Bible is about growth? growth, fruitfulness, increase. What about the idea of spiritual growth then? In Colossians uh, chapter 2, 
Ben read for us from chapter 1, but Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul speaks about the church. And he, he talks about the church being a body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, growing as God causes it to grow. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Growing as God causes it to grow. I want you to notice that it is God, the Lord God, who causes growth. I'm thankful for that. It's not the preacher. God may use preachers. Thank God he does use all of us. But ultimately, growth comes from God himself. Do you remember in the church at Corinth, Christians were arguing about this and Paul had to tick them off a little. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some of them wanted to follow Apollos. Some wanted to follow Paul. And they, they, they were developing little cliques. And what does Paul say? I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. But only God who makes things grow. This is why when we see growth happening, we should thank God for it and not go, it's all about me. It is God who gives the increase. Growth should never produce pride, but ought to produce a profound sense of thankfulness and gratitude to the God who gives growth. Now it is good when there's numerical growth and we're seeing something of like that in our church but the, this idea of spiritual growth I, it, it would be a good thing to get a concordance and uh, look up the word grow, growing, growth or increase and trace this idea. What we often find is that Paul prays for the believers in the churches that he's planted to be growing spiritually let me show you uh, one or two verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, page 1189. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We were asking at the start, what does it mean to grow spiritually? Well, what does Paul perceive spiritual growth to be? Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3 Paul says we ought always to thank God for you brothers and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring what, what two things does Paul say in that verse that are, that are growing for them? Shout them all. Faith. Faith. That was a good loud voice, thank you. And what's the other one? Well, persecutions, yeah, but before that, I'm thinking of character traits more. 
He doesn't use the word growing, but he does use the word increasing. Persevere. Well, that's true. Their perseverance is growing. But before that even, love. It's it's there in verse 3. Their persecutions and their faithfulness are growing as well. But he says your faith is growing and your love is increasing. So if you want to know whether you're growing as a Christian, there's two things you can check straight away. Do I trust God more than I did? And do I love others more than I did? That's spiritual growth. Paul often prays, just go back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's only just the page before. And Paul prays for this church in Thessalonica. And he says in verse 12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. May the Lord make your love increase. Is that something you pray for? Lord, give me a heart of love for other people. That's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? It's a good prayer to pray for one another. And and Ben read, looking for Ben, Ben read Colossians chapter 1. We, we, we haven't got time to go through it all in detail, but um, Colossians chapter 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We, actually, we should stop there, shouldn't we? This is not in my notes, but um, do you thank God for one another? That is a great antidote to criticism and being frustrated and irritated with one another, isn't it? Oh God, thank you for the other believers in my church family. Thank you for so-and-so. Thank you for so-and-so. Thank you for their faith and love and service for you. Thank you that you saved them. Paul often says that, doesn't he? We always thank God when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith. And what does he pray for them? Well, he says, verse 9, we've been praying for God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. So he wants them to grow in knowledge. He wants them to live a life worthy of the Lord and please Jesus in every way. He wants them to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Well, what a, what a prayer that is. I don't think the Christian life sounds boring to Paul. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And it's a kingdom that's growing. Peter, as well, later on. There's a lovely verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, right at the end of 2 Peter. And Peter says this as a command. I don't know if you talk to your plants at home. Some people do, don't they? And you, and you say to them, grow, grow. You can't talk to a plant, don't you grow, can you? But what does Peter say at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3? He just says to them, grow. He's not praying for them to grow. He actually tells it. He's talking to his plants and saying, grow. Grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus. 
Well, let, let me... Um, I just want to say two things. I could say more, but um, I want to say two things about this idea. First of all, it is really crucial that we cultivate a sense of hope in our Christianity. We've seen from the Bible that God is a God of increase and growth and generosity, extravagance in a way, abundance. My question for you and for me as well this morning is, do you believe that God wants you to grow? Do you believe that God wants you to grow? Are you expecting to be making progress in your life with faith and love? Or do you think spiritual growth is just for other people and it will never happen to you? I think our modern culture has within it a kind of cynicism. I think we're very British with this as well, you know. We don't like hooping and hollering like Americans do and slapping each other on the back and being all super positive. We're very reserved as British people. But there is a kind of cynicism that settles into our lives if we're not careful. Just as an illustration of this, I was just this week there was a guy who left uh, the American bank Goldman Sachs. I don't know if you saw this in the press this week. But he wrote a letter to the New York Times. It's about two or three pages on my screen. And he was basically saying, I just can't wait for this bank anymore. It's just, it's not what it was. It's corrupt. Ripping customers off. Trying to sell products to customers that they don't really need just so we can make more money. I've had enough. And when you, when you read it, you, know, you, you couldn't help but admire this guy for jacking in his job on principle. But what has been really shocking is the reaction of other people saying, is this news? Is this not the way it's always been in history? Isn't every bank been corrupt? Isn't it always like that? You've just got to learn to accept it and work within it. These sorts of things will never change. And so this guy kind of makes a stand and everyone goes, yeah, tell us something new. And there's like a cynicism there that this is just, it's not right, but does anyone care? Apathy is set in. We can't fix it. It's human nature. We're just going to carry on in the same old way. I think that kind of attitude can happen to me and to you as well as Christians. I've made mistakes. I'll never change. Maybe the circles I'm mixing just get me down. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to drift along like our imaginary friend John. I, I, really, I give up. And I'm not expecting to grow or make progress. I wonder whether that's you. One of the things we need to cultivate is a sense of God being at work in our hearts. And the sense of optimism and hope to look forward to the future with a sense of God is doing something significant in my heart and in the hearts of my fellow Christians. We need to resist the cynicism and the apathy of our culture and lift our hearts 
much higher than that to God, the God of growth, progress, increase, fruitfulness, and not give in to unbelief. There is another side to this, though. I just want to make this point as well. Avoiding crisis Christianity, this is a different issue. I I didn't really know what to call this. There, There is a tendency for some Christians to be looking for some kind of experience that will settle this question once and for all. Some kind of crisis that delivers holiness in one kind of, I want to say one false sweep, but that's not the right thing to say, is it? Now, don't misunderstand me, because sometimes in life we do have crisis experience. I'm not belittling or trivialising that. But I think there are Christians who think there's some secret formula that they need to stumble on that will suddenly, in a moment, take all their difficulties away and fill them with energy and peace and vitality and joy. Some Christians teach that this comes. I hear Christians use this sort of language. It'll happen when you surrender all to Jesus. What does that mean? Some people promote the idea that there's some sort of spiritual experience, like a kind of second birth experience that will lift us onto a higher plane. All the other Christians are carnal and worldly, but I'm on a higher plane now because I've had this crisis experience. Often there can be a sense that if we're struggling, that God is really testing or even, dare I say it, punishing us for something that isn't right in our lives and that that only serves to increase our guilt and decrease our faith. And the result of this is that we end up living life in a kind of waiting mode. One day I'll be a good Christian. Maybe next year I'll reach that crisis point and it'll all kind of come into focus. One day, one day, one day, one day. But not yet. I want to say to you, if that's you this morning, I want to ask you, what about today? The point I'm trying to make is that every day is a day of opportunity and growth. And this is not so much a crisis that's needed, but just daily dependence on God. There's no shortcut. If you find it, let me know. There's no station you can go to and plug yourself in and be zapped so that all your problems will go away. Jesus said, follow me. And as you do that, every single experience that you have is part of the process of growing. I suppose this this is a challenge to me. What I'm trying to do is to call you to live a normal Christian life. Not a super dramatic, crisis-fueled Christian life. And not to give up and fall into a trap of thinking, maybe I'll never change. The time is now, today. If you're a Christian, God is your Father. Christ is your Saviour. You are a blood-bought people. You have the Bible. You have opportunities to grow. 
This is not boring or dead, but the most exciting journey you could be on. Today, not next year, no, this very day. Well, how do we, how do we grow then? Very uh, quickly, uh, someone was asking me last week to do a little recap on our series. And um, this seems like a good time to do it, just as we close. Because I want to just demonstrate that everything that we've been saying all over the last few weeks is all about growth. How can we be a healthy church by growing? And how do we grow? By, by being committed to the kind of things that we've been talking about. Unlike our imaginary friend John, who wanted to opt in and opt out, we need to be intentional in, ma- in building these priorities into our lives. And you, you know what they are. We, yeah, they all are. The priority of preaching, spiritual growth, comes from God's word being understood and applied to our lives. And we need all of it. Not just a few favourite passages. Preachers are important, but actually it's the word of God that's the most crucial thing. A preacher's job really is to point you to God's word. That's really where your heart should be. We need to submit to it, to learn to love it, prioritise it and keep it central to everything we're doing. That's why on a Sunday our main time is given to gathering around God's word. It's part of our worship. We come to listen to God speak to us. We long to hear him and to obey him and to follow him. And I want to say, if you stay here, then um, thank God that this is a church that does prioritise that. If you leave this area and move to another church, don't join a church that doesn't prioritise the preaching and teaching of the Bible. Oh, they're all up there, aren't they? I'll leave that alone. That's the last slide. Good theology. We said, didn't we, it's pointless to make stuff up about God or just imagine him to be something that we want him to be. What is important is getting to understand the character of God. And here, here's the deal. We talked about faith increasing. What is it that makes you trust someone in life? Well, I think part of the answer to that is that you trust people that you know. You know their character, their habits, their values. And so you feel that you can trust them. It is no different with God, is it? Sometimes we say that the thing that helps us to trust in God is our experience of difficulties. But that really is only half of it. In a way, our difficulties are an opportunity to trust him. But the reason we can trust him is because we know him. God has revealed himself in history, his faithfulness, his promises, his warnings, his character, reliability and faithfulness. So if you want to grow in faith, your priority has got to be to know more of God's character and to have a sound theology about God. Understanding the gospel, this is crucial because it gets the heart of human nature, doesn't it? We should never really be surprised at what humanity is capable of because we believe what the Bible says about human nature the Bible, the gospel is not just a booster jab that enhances our own previous morality 
But actually the gospel tells us that we're fallen people. We're prone to selfishness. We're unfaithful to God. We're rebels full of excuses. And that we need God's grace to help us. We were thinking about Peter the other day in our growth group and how Jesus exposed him in a way to the foolishness of his own self-confidence. He thought he could do it, but then didn't do it. The glory of the gospel is that God loves us even though he knows the very worst about us. And growth is experience really not, not in us trying to impress God but in coming near to him with our brokenness and finding his grace to heal us and rebuild us and restore us understanding conversion this is an extension of, of, of the last point the, the deal is that the Christian life is all about God's work in our hearts isn't it it isn't our work for him I'm reminded of this often. When, when we realise that our dependence on God is, is the root, really, of our Christian life, that, that is really where... Jesus said, didn't he, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When we, when we try to impress God, we, we either become proud or we become despairing when we when we recognize that it is his grace then we can become thankful instead of self-righteous i've said often god loves us not because we are lovely but because it is in his nature to be loving and there is a difference our salvation is rooted in his character not in our character. Healthy evangelism. Sometimes we can fall into teaching people who are not Christians that they are. Mark Dever tells the story of a church growth consultant. Imagine that for a job, being a church growth consultant. And this church growth consultant said, this is in America, only an American could say this, I think. Just scrub that off the tape, won't we? He claimed that if the church adopted a simple three-point plan that up to 10 million people would be added to the church within a month. And the three-point plan was advertise, share the product benefits and be nice to new people. And if all churches followed that three-point plan, the church would grow by up to 10 million people. Maybe we should try it. Do you think, Rich? Well, <laughs> Advert- oh, there's some truth in all these things. You've got people need to know you're there. It is important to share the good things about Jesus with others. It's very important for us to welcome newcomers. But is that really evangelism? The church is not there, first of all, to massage people's self-esteem, but to preach a serious message and to tell people and to remind ourselves that in our natural condition we're separated from God and that the way home is only made possible by Jesus 
his death and resurrection and that we need to respond to him in faith and repentance. We shouldn't be begging people or forcing people or manipulating people to become Christians. Actually, it is God's work. And then we talked last level about church membership and church discipline and just having those healthy standards. It's one of the reasons that it will be good for us to put a covenant together. We want to encourage one another in our church family to live godly lives. Well, next week, we're, we're going to look at the last mark of a healthy church. So you'll have to come back to find out what that is next time. But my question for you is, are, are you growing as a Christian? Or, or will you be a drifter like our imaginary friend John do you believe that God wants you to grow and will you be intentional in building priorities into your life that will help you to grow and mature as a Christian man or woman well may that be true for all of us